and welcome to Outrage and Optimism. I'm Tom Rivik Karnak. And I'm Christiana Figueres. And I'm Paul Dickinson. This week, we discuss science as the basis of a functioning society, and we speak to astronaut Jessica Meir, and we have music from Mesador. Thanks for being here. Yeah, we'll never, when he's on holiday, we'll never match that. And this is the problem, Paul. You know, Tom is going to be away for two weeks, and I'm already getting very nervous. We're not going to be able to properly introduce this, you or me. Passengers don't fly the airplane, Tom. It's It's that It's reading two sentences. You're going to be fine. Okay, will you send us the two sentences? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Thank you. (laughs) You've been doing it in your sleep all this time, and we've become mollycoddled. That's the word. And we're just not ready now to strike out on our own. I'm sorry. How do you spell that word? (laughs) It's a nice word, right? Well, so I'm going on holiday next week. I'm going to be away for two weeks. What are you going to do? You're going to have a guest co-host? You're going to figure it out. We're going to panic is what we're going to do. Well, that's For the whole oh, two first, weeks. we're going to panic. Then we're going to worry. Then we're going to start blaming other people. That's my plan. <laughs> <laughs> Practice how's, makes perfect. How's everyone doing? Christiana, are you back at the beach or are you still in San Jose? No, no. I'm in San Jose. I've been here for a few days and I will be here till the end of the week. Very nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mr. Paul? Uh, well, I am I am here on the south coast of Brighton. Uh, no, south coast of England in Brighton. That's the one. Yep, that's it. And... Um, and it's kind of, you know, it's it's, it's a typical grey, wet, not very warm July. Sadly. I know, um, I know. As a result of that, we are we are going south. So we didn't know what we were going to do for summer, but we're going to go to Switzerland. So we're going to stay in a very nice place there. We're driving on Sunday. Apparently it's fine. We're going to go on the boat from Calais to Dover and be away with the family for two weeks. Nice. Yeah. How long yeah, well, does it take you to get there? Six hours. Six hours with two children in the back of the car saying... Are we there yet? Can I have your phone? Are we there yet? Can I have your phone? Are we there yet? Can I have your phone? So I'm looking forward to it. Are they tame children? Paul, you know my children. No. no. <laughs> I'm, I'm, introducing, I'm introducing these tame feral kings and queens to the listeners. How would you describe them? They certainly have their own opinion about things. <laughs> Which they express in very uncertain terms. <laughs> Chris, uh, Zoe used to go and do cooking with Christiana at her flat in London. And, and I mean, some things were still standing after a couple of hours, I seem to remember. Yeah, the plastic bottles. The plastic bottles. <laughs> <laughs> very brave, very brave. Hey, listen, I want to share something with you from last week. Do you yes. remember our wonderful Beans on Toast who was speaking? He said something. Jay. A musician. Right? Yeah. Jay, that's right, Jay. Uh, I was using his stage name. Oh, sorry. Yes, yes, indeed, yeah. <laughs> And we were talking about artists and what they should do. And he said, I don't think anyone's ever really known what an artist's kind of duty is in humanity. And that is kind of the beauty of it, really. Mm. And I thought that was a fascinating uh, insight into the role of the artist. And we had a conversation about Jane Fonda saying famous people should be repeaters. But then Jay talked about the K-pop fans and I got all excited and started laughing and I just wanted to share with any of our listeners if they don't know about this but you may have come across the fact that uh, uh, Donald Trump poor poor Donald Trump went to a rally uh, that was not half as well attended as he thought and uh, the Financial Times reported on the 21st of June that it appears at least some of the million sign-ups that didn't turn up were prompted by a call to action from TikTok user Mary Jo Laup, who is a 51-year-old posting under the hashtag TikTok Grandma. And on June the 11th, she urged her followers in a clip that was viewed more than 2 million times to apply for two free tickets to the event. So TikTok there you Grandma. go. Grandma, <laughs> I love it. I love it. <laughs> 
I gather that this is now a little tactic that is being used for several of his uh, gatherings, um, and he is quite upset about it. I'm not mm. sure how they're going to correct that. Correct, in quotation marks. Indeed. It's getting alarming. Well, it's not getting alarming. I mean, obviously, at the moment, it looks pretty good in terms of the U.S. election, but touch wood when we say that. Who knows, right? It's a long oh. way to go. I found... I Can I use this moment just to make a very quick political announcement, uh, which is that I've found a way to be helpful in the U.S. election. I have a good friend who we also... You also know, Christiana, called Yasmin Ansari. She is an Iranian-American woman, still in her 20s. She's running for Phoenix City Council. And it's kind of an important position to help run the city and lead on climate change. She's a brilliant candidate. She has to win. Tomorrow, when this podcast comes out on Saturday, I'm doing a fundraiser together with our good friend Ben Rhodes, former Deputy National Security Advisor for President Obama. He and I were doing a fundraiser. If you want to join that, if you're a US citizen, you want to donate to Yasmin's campaign, Yasmin and Sari, just Google her, you'll find it. Join us and join us in conversation together with Ben on Saturday. Great. That is really excellent. And and Yasmin really would be such a breath of fresh air. But Tom, what about those of us who are not US citizens? Is there well, any way for no, us to No, because you can't help? of course you can't give to to you know, I mean you can be helpful on Twitter and promote it and that sort of thing. Um but that's why I was so pleased to find a way to be helpful. And Or God, we can find US friends who would donate. Exactly. And God bless Ben Rhodes. I mean, you know, so nice of him to participate bless with us him. and help help her in that way. Absolutely. Yeah. And God bless uh, you, Tom, for hosting. <laughs> and God Thank bless you. you. And, and, God, and bless God bless Paul just in general. Yeah. Um, all the time. But let's <laughs> let's particularly God bless Clay for putting the link to that fundraiser in the show notes. It'll be there. Absolutely. Yeah. And God bless Christiana. Yeah. <laughs> um, right. To business. So this week we are going to talk about the very intricate and important relationship between science and policymaking. We know that we cannot have a functioning society unless we have a platform on which we can agree on basic facts. And that has really been under threat in all sorts of ways in recent years. But what we found through the coronavirus is that people have begun to understand the importance of science again. They've begun to understand the importance of listening to science and translating that into policy. So is this a moment for optimism, for hope that actually we're going to find our way back? to understanding and realizing that our society has to be based on good science and that will enable us to move forward and address threats together. Discuss. Well, it discuss. Well, thank you for that instruction. <laughs> no, we won't. We won't discuss it. So there you are. Right, different topic. Well, um, what an important topic, honestly. And it is one of the highest hopes that are coming out of this COVID crisis, isn't it? The fact that at least in those countries that have paid attention to science, they seem to be doing better. I will spare you of an update on Costa Rica. Um, <laughs> but it, it does seem that there is one leitmotif coming, and there are many leitmotifs coming out of the COVID crisis, lesson, treasure, uh, box. But one is science is back. Those health professionals are definitely playing an incredibly critical role. The science that they are um, executing, implementing, the science that they are using to suggest policy that makes sense is um, definitely what is making a difference in some countries. And those countries that are not doing well are precisely because they are not heeding the science. So 
is is this, and, and we've discussed this ad nauseum, I think, on this podcast, is COVID going to change many of our mindsets, many of the ways that we do things, including paying attention to science, whether it be for health, human health, or whether it be for global planetary health, i.e. climate change. So yes, one of the big chunks that we hope are going to be lessons learned and sticky lessons that will stay with us after we get over the COVID crisis itself. Paul? There is a risk that listeners will find large sections of the Financial Times simply channeled through me into your ears. But I read a fascinating (laughs) article suggesting that uh, COVID will kind of kill populism to a degree for exactly the reasons Christiana just mentioned. That is that, you know, we've gone from sort of stumbling um, through our kind of guts and our feelings and and some pretty obscure rhetoric into a a land of consequences where we listen very, very carefully to scientists. And, uh, you know, that was on the, the sails of Greta's boat as she crossed the Atlantic, unite behind the science. So we're doing that. And just one beautiful example of that uh, from a real proper grown-up, I think. Uh, Just today, 8th of July, when we're recording this, um, Christine Lagarde, president of the European Central Bank, has opened the door to using a 2.8 trillion euro asset purchase scheme to pursue green objectives. And in fact... um, you know, she says that doing, you know, acting on climate change, there's nothing that uh, she believes in more strongly. Uh, and she believes the European Central Bank has to look at all the business lines and operations in which they are engaged in order to tackle climate change, because at the end of the day, money talks. And so I just want to draw great joy and satisfaction from that kind of inspired leadership and to wonder, you know, really, when are the political community going to catch up? It's now time, you know, these our elections now are about matching these these moves from scientists and, and from administrators and regulators all around our society. Yeah, no, I think that's great. And it's very, I mean, so, I mean she's been such a good leader in so many ways and, and it's really inspiring what she's done there. But just to, to talk about that kind of intersection of, it, one thing that this reminds me of what you just said, Christiana, is, um, you know, when we had Yuval Harari on, he said, that the mistake we've made is we've allowed the means by which we achieve our aims to set our goals, right? That the sort of the process Mm -hmm. of economics sets the objectives of economics. And of course, we get very lost by doing that. Whereas the place that we can actually set our goals and we can set our North Star and we can have an agreed reality is through science. And one of the things I found myself reflecting on as I've watched like these Boris Johnson briefings and others is how differently experts talk compared to politicians. You know, politicians are like, oh, it's all going to be fine. And here's the reason. And here's why I'm great. Whereas experts are like, we don't really know that. And we're going to do our best to figure it out. And here's what we do know. And here's what we don't. And our knowledge is always changing. And it just here's the warning. And here's the warning. And it just sort of made me reflect on the fact, you know, Yuval Harari's point that we made this systemic mistake, the reemergence of science in the face of this, of how different our society would be if we could really make that change. We could really understand that it's not about bluster. It's about reality, identifying it, uniting behind it and taking Mm. meaningful and rational action in response to it. It's very tantalizing in a way. I mean, the question is, you know, how, how many times do we have to be clobbered over the head to learn that, that lesson? Yeah. So today we're going to be interviewing um, a fantastic female astronaut that we will introduce in a minute. Um, but in preparation for this conversation today, friends, my daughter, Jihana, sent me a quick little article about what happened way back in 1986 
when the space shuttle Challenger was um, sent out or tried to be sent out. And I'm sure all the listeners will remember because either they witnessed it or they have heard of it uh, for the younger ones, that the um, space shuttle Challenger left its uh, station and 73 seconds into its flight, it burst into flames and all seven crew members were burned to death. Now, what is incredible about that is that the investigation that then ensued about what had gone wrong showed that Roger Beaujolais was a very high-ranking um, engineer and that he had warned repeatedly that if there was cold weather, the seals of the huge rocket boosters would fail. And he said, and I quote, the result could be a catastrophe of the highest order, i.e. loss of human life, end of quote. Now, the night before the liftoff, the temperature in Florida did actually dip below freezing, which is highly unusual for Florida. And he begged, begged his bosses and the NASA authorities to delay the um, launching of the Challenger. He was overridden because of policy, because of politics, because there was such public expectation that the Challenger would take off on that day. And they were willing to com be completely blind to his warnings that came out of his scientific observations of the reactions of these boosters to different temperature. So we lost seven astronauts, and of course, a huge hit for NASA's credibility for what they did later. Um, now, he, Mr. Beaujolais was then ostracized. No one in NASA wanted to have anything to do with him. He was ostracized from his own company that was a, um, a, a company that was producing these boosters for NASA. And for a long time, despite the fact that he took all the evidence to um, Capitol Hill and showed them the memos and what he had warned, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, he was really um, ostracized as a whistleblower until finally everything was on the table, and he was then redeemed and awarded the prize for scientific freedom and responsibility by the American Association for the Advancement of Science. Mm. So, what you know, what what a story! What a story of the um, the confrontation here between science and politics, or policy, whichever way you want to look at it, uh, with the attendant human loss and the incredible, obviously the financial hit to NASA and the credibility hit, et cetera, et cetera, huge ramifications. And, you know, just because um, Jessica that we're going to interview is a female astronaut, I was also really tickled to read in this article that he said that the only person who supported him after his first appearance before the commission on Capitol Hill was Sally Ride, the first American woman in space. Mm. He said she was the only one, the only one who came up and gave him a big hug and thanked him for his bravery. So there you go. What a story. Um, but you know, what concerns me is, I don't know how many of these stories we've had. And do we learn from them? I mean, it's an amazing story and it illustrates what's great. It illustrates on a human level some of these systemic pressures that we go through between, you know, 
a sort of leadership bravado to kind of move fast and break things that has some assets, right? I mean, obviously it was a disastrous in that case, but there can be a leadership element of wanting to like be entrepreneurial and be creative and the necessity to have science play its rightful role to kind of fit within that. And 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 the tension there that is has has historically always been there. But I think what you're pointing to and kind of what we're pointing out here is that we've got that balance wrong, right? It's always going to be a tension. We're never going to resolve that. It's never going to be a simplicity saying, now we're science-led, we don't do these other things. But we need to rebalance that, particularly when it comes to major long-term systemic scientific threats like the climate crisis and like the pandemic. And that's where we kind of have an institutional weakness, right? Because that's, you know, it's, it's human nature to kind of have a go and, and try and figure wow. stuff out as you go. What do you think, Paul? I, I was about to say, I'm not entirely sure we do have an institutional weakness. I believe we have a little institutional jewel in the great pile of rubbish that is a lot of contemporary society. And that is the actuarial profession. Now, I myself have <laughs> gone and hung out with actuaries since about 2002. And I find them more fascinating than they find themselves, to be honest with you. Uh, but the thing <laughs> That's about the not difficult. <laughs> <laughs> Don't, please, Christiana, I have the greatest respect for you, but I would like you not to say anything against actuaries if you didn't mind. I stand corrected. Uh, Here's the thing. Um, I was talking to an actuary uh, who was working at a very large re reinsurance company about climate change risk. And he he kind of looked at me and he kind of, he was kind of just like, he was quite emphatic, should we say. And he said, you know, people are like not taking much action on climate change because they're not certain what the impacts will be. He said, I'm an insurer. He said, I'm a long tail insurer. He says, I insure these kinds of, of, of risks with like m medical drugs and things like that. And he said, when you've got uncertainty, he said, the premium is completely sky high. It's through yeah. the roof. You never charge more than when you have an uncertain risk. And what he was trying to say in very simple language is the reason we should absolutely you know, divert all our energies and all of these trillions of restructuring to do something about climate change is not because we know what the impacts will be, but because we actually don't. Yeah. Well, I think we talked about this, if I remember correctly, on one of our podcasts about climate being a high probability and high impact, high negative mm, impact high risk. So it, it's, it stands in that quadrant, right? Yeah. It's not low probability, high risk. It's or, not a very nice quadrant to be in. No, it's <laughs> it's the absolutely most critical quadrant. If Paul, if I go to the Association of Actuaries and they don't have on their homepage by tomorrow... Actuaries are the jewel in the rubbish heap of institutions. As a quote from Paul Dickinson, I'm going to be very disappointed. I'm going to. I know. Like, I know. I know. Someone on this podcast has won the Legion d'Honneur and various other prizes too numerous to mention. But I'm going to mention that I got a silver pin from the UK actuarial profession for my volunteering. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. Were you, were you making the tea, or what were you doing? <laughs> no, Tom. Tom. Thank Just you, Christiana. Please. <laughs> right. So we're bringing you an amazing interview today. As Christiana said, we have long wanted to interview this person. And actually, it's perfect timing, um, in part because uh, if you think back, friends, to last week when we interviewed Richard Curtis, um, we had some questions from the audience. And they were very good questions. But what was really interesting about them was even though we were talking about pensions and the chance to change the future through the pensions, the questions were all about this persistent issue we've talked about on the podcast around what does it mean to live at the moment, witnessing this kind of unraveling of our world, how painful that can be, how numb people can feel. And so I think what's really nice about this conversation is it is based in science. She's an amazing scientist. Um, but it's also about perspective and what perspective mm. 
Mm. going to space and looking back at yes. our Earth can give you. So I think this will be a really nice... And how she how she wants all of us to share in that perspective. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, um, so Jessica Meir... Uh, is an American-born NASA astronaut. She's had the most amazing life and career. She's also a marine biologist and a physiologist. She studied first the diving physiology and behavior of emperor penguins in Antarctica and the physiology of geese in their migration over the Himalayas. Then in 2002, she became an aquanaut at NASA in the NASA Extreme Environment Mission. And then in 2013, she was selected by NASA into an astronaut group. She launched into space on the 25th of September last year, went to the International Space Station that you'll hear her talk about. She served as a flight engineer and on the 18th of October, together with Christina Koch, were the first women to participate in the all-female spacewalk. And she came Yay. back to Earth on the 17th of April, where she landed in Kazakhstan. She's the most amazingly thoughtful, eloquent person. We were very privileged to have her on. I mean, she's basically a superhero, isn't she? Or a heroine. I mean, I don't, you know, I just, all of these things, like I've never heard anything like it. I, I mean, you know what I yeah. discovered in the course of doing this research? She's, yo she's younger than me. It's always frightening uh, when you discover that these brilliant people are younger than you. Yeah. No, it was always tough when the president of France oh, well is kind used. of like younger than your nephew or something. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> and given the fact that it was Melania Guerra who has been on this podcast and who introduced us to Jessica, we've actually invited Melania to be a surprise co-host with us today on the podcast. Let's listen. Well, Jessica, thank you so much for joining us on um, Outrage and Optimism. We have been on your tail for quite a while, in fact, even when you were out in space. Uh, and through our friendship with Melania Guerra, uh, who you studied with at Scripps Institution of Oceanography. So we thought, since this has finally come about, which we are totally celebrating, we thought we would, um, as a huge exception to our rule, where we usually co-host, the three of us, we would invite a fourth co-host, and we have Melania Guerra, who will um, also be on the tape with you today. And it is Melania's birthday. So this is our form <laughs> of saying happy birthday, Melania. Happy birthday. Um, so, so Paul and Tom and I will be in conversation with you, but you better get ready because Melania will have the last question. So we thought we would love to start off our conversation today a little bit on the personal side, because um, it's not everyone who gets to be an astronaut. It's not everyone who gets to realize their childhood dream. You, by self-admission, drew a picture of yourself in a spacesuit uh, for a school assignment at the age of seven. So how does Jessica go from uh, a little drawing on a piece of paper to actually stepping into a spacesuit and doing what NASA has trained her to do? It is a long journey, a long life journey. <laughs> How did that happen? Well, first of all, it is lovely to be here speaking with all of you today. I am very impressed by this podcast, and it is certainly a very important topic to me. And I'm glad that you brought in the Melania factor because she is, of course, a very special friend. And I'm very, very happy to be doing this on her birthday as sort of a birthday present for her as well. So thank you exactly. for mentioning all of that. 
So it's true. I did. My first memory of wanting to be an astronaut was this this mental image I have of when I was in the first grade and our, our teacher asked us to draw a picture of what we wanted to be when we grew up. And I drew a picture of an astronaut in a spacesuit standing on the surface of the moon, sort of that iconic image next to the, the American flag. And it was just something that I always said ever since then. My mom says I actually even started saying it as early as five years old. And it was always <laughs> what everybody associated with me. Everyone called me things like space girl and, and expected you know, me to, to always be involved in all of these space-related activities as much as possible. And so that's exactly what I did. I, I went through my life trying to involve myself in any opportunity where I saw an opening for something that was space-related or some kind of training session with NASA and at the same time, I was pursuing biology as my favorite subject. So as a kid, I think I was just inspired by the natural world around me and the diversity and the plant and the animal kingdom, and perhaps also just spurred on by the fact that my mother was a Swede and who many Swedes are, of course, inherently connected to nature. And she, she spent a lot of time with us outside. So some kind of, I think, combination of these things gave me this passion for exploration and for nature. And I think that the cosmos and NASA and a career as an astronaut were sort of just a natural extension for that. But I did try to really follow both of those goals in parallel, um, studying biology as an undergraduate and going on to graduate school after working at NASA for a few years. So kind of jumping back and forth between the two and trying to find a way to combine those pursuits. And I think if you really boil it down to one common element, it's this extreme environments and looking at the physiology of animals in extreme environments. That's what really drove me as a scientist and brought me to incredible places like the Antarctic. Like Antarctica, exactly. That's right. So to study animals that were really working and living and, and exhibiting these remarkable behaviors at the extremes, like, for example, an emperor penguin that can dive on a single breath for over 30 minutes. So understanding and trying to unravel some of these secrets and what is unique and special about these animals to allow them to do that. And now at the other end of the extreme, I guess I am the animal in the extreme environment living in space, <laughs> which is perhaps the... The harshest and most. That's a nice way to put it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I do sort of look at it as coming full circle where I used to do experiments on these remarkable animals to understand more about what makes them unique. Now I'm the one being experimented upon in the extreme environment. <laughs> and the extreme environment is that, of course, of space. So I, I went from working at NASA and coordinating life science experiments to going to graduate school and then having a career as a scientist studying the animals in extreme environments. And now finally to being the animal in the extreme environment that's being experimented upon. So I, I guess it's just my turn. <laughs> Are you being experimented upon by yourself or by others? And what are the lessons from that experiment? Well, as astronauts, we are human subjects for a variety of different physiological and medical experiments on board the International Space Station and other platforms that we have flown on in the past, like the space shuttle. 
So I think it's a very important part of our jobs where we do need to make sure that we are signing up for these experiments and participating in them because we need to know more about how spaceflight and the microgravity environment affect us as humans, first of all, to make sure that we can bring astronauts home safely from their missions, but also to make sure that we can deliver astronauts safely to their destinations. For example, when we eventually go to Mars, that will be something like a three-year mission. And being in microgravity in the spaceflight environment for an extended period of time, of course, has a lot of deleterious effects to our bodies. With the offloading of gravity, we have a loss of bone density, we have muscle atrophy, our muscles wasting away, we are subjected to some higher levels of radiation than we are here on Earth. So all of these questions, all these things need to be solved in order to understand more about humans, in order to keep us safe as astronauts. But also, it's also very important to bringing this back to the Earth itself, a lot of these a lot of these questions actually have parallels to disease states on Earth. So the things that we are learning by being experimented upon and other experiments that we're doing on the space station as well are really, as we say at NASA, off the Earth for the Earth. And we are bringing these results directly back to people on the ground. They have There are many real-life applications in terms of pharmaceutical research and drug development and other parallels that have direct correlations to situations, disease states, or other Earth technologies with things that we can learn. and with the results that we are gaining from these experiments in space. Off the earth for the earth. That's a beautiful concept, beautiful concept, because it takes us sort of away in order to come back to ourselves, doesn't it? Yeah, it certainly does. And I think it's, I've heard an astronaut say before, everybody returns, every astronaut returns to Earth, an environmentalist or an eco-warrior, or I forget the exact words that he used, but mm. I think it is true. It is difficult as a human to go into space and to look back at our planet and to see it from above, truly from the outside, and to not have it change you. And that's mm. something, you know, Frank White even wrote about it and called it the overview effect in terms of how it changes you as a person to experience that, to look back at the earth, what it does to you philosophically and how it changes the way you think about not only yourself, but your position in, in the grander scheme of things on the planet, in the solar system and in the universe. And one of the most resounding parts of that or components of that for, for me, and I think for most people, is how that makes you view our planet. When you look back and you see this brilliant blue marble that is truly this beacon below you in the blackness and the void of space all around, and the vibrant color palette and the very, very thin, tenuous band of an atmosphere, it yeah. makes you realize, wow, this is not only beautiful and special, but it's very fragile. And it yeah. is something that we need to, to, to take care of. We need to protect it. And for me, that was something that I'd always thought a lot about. I, I've considered myself an environmentalist long before I went to space, but I can say that having seen it with my own eyes, it resonates even more loudly now, having even more of an appreciation and more of a desire 
to protect it and to make sure that we are all doing whatever it is we can to help move in that direction and preserve this this planet, this unique home that all 7.5 billion people call home to preserve that for the generations to come. And mm -hmm. I've heard so many astronauts come back and say that even people who didn't actually think about climate change or these environmental issues very much in their lives before going to space. So it's a, it's a very unique vantage point that we are incredibly privileged to have. Mm. It's so beautiful to hear you talk about that. And of course, you know, the overview effect is is so famous. I think it was Michael Collins who said he got out there and looked back and just felt it's tiny, it's beautiful, it's home and it's fragile. And hearing you speak then, I mean, you've clearly been aware of these issues of the environment for a long time, but still you went out to space, you look back and it still had that kind of deep effect on you. And I've I've seen some, some um, analysis that suggests that astronauts that return not only have that kind of cognitive shift, but they tend to change their lives as well afterwards and live in a slightly different way. So I'm curious to know those sorts of changes that the overview effect describes are sort of what we collectively as humanity need to sort of step into and embrace a bit more. Having come back and having had that experience, did you get any insight into how, you know, not everybody can go into space, but how we can all get more of a flavor of that so we can all have that sense of fragility and responsibility and beauty of the planet? Yeah, that's an excellent question. And I, I wish I had an, a great answer to that one. It is something I thought about a lot and still think about so often, especially right now with so much going on in the world, ranging from environmentalism and taking care of our planet to this global pandemic, to the civil unrest that we're experiencing in our country right now. And for me, all of those things are the one, the one underlying theme that also resonated so loudly from looking at the planet from space is that we are truly all in this together. And for some reason, when you experience that, just like the overview effect describes, when you see this with your own eyes and you see the land masses that are all connected and the oceans and how everything is, is spinning really down there beneath you in its entirety, it really is one object and one home. And that's so plain to see from your eyes and from your perspective up there. And I wish that I could transport every human's eyes up there with me to gain that kind of appreciation because it, it's really clear from there. It is absolutely clear. And I think that most people would agree with me when they, they feel the same way when they're looking at it. So one of the things that we try to do as astronauts is to serve as ambassadors to help spread that knowledge, just as many of you do in the climate world, to first of all, inform people, to make sure that people are aware of all these things. That's really number one, is to make sure that we are educating. Because although all of these issues may be painfully clear to you and to me, the word still needs to get out there in certain communities. We need to make sure that we are doing our best in communicating as well as just gathering the science and trying to inform policy. Because if you can't educate the public and the constituents and all of the, the people, the general public on, on the planet, then I think that we are in a bit of a losing scenario. So I think that's incredibly important. So we try to serve as ambassadors and sharing our views, our experiences, our photographs, 
I tried to share a lot of what I called earth art type photos. I'm certainly not the first astronaut to do that, but to try to help relay the beauty of the planet, different ways that we can think about it and make those connections. And it's something I've said as well. I wish these all of the world leaders could be up here and see this view because I think it really could be paradigm shifting in terms of how it does change you as an individual. So short of getting everybody to space, I think we can just try to use all of these means of photo and video. And there's a, a new project that's being done on the space station right now called the ISS Experience and it's actually a 3D virtual reality, 360-degree virtual reality, completely immersive experience. And that it is something that I, I am blown away by how it enables me to share what I do with people because you really feel like you're there and experiencing it. And so mm -hmm. we have footage now of that camera inside the cupola looking down at the planet. And maybe those kind of views will help people relate to that feeling and that perspective a little bit better in the future. So I think just continuing to communicate is, is the thing that I'm trying to do the most, but I would love it if you have any more ideas on how to help share this perspective. <laughs> well, Paul wants to jump in, but I'm sorry, Paul, can I, do, I'm, I'm just go for it, go for it, go chomping for it. at the bit here to ask <laughs> us a follow-up to that. Um, Jessica, in this very intentional communication effort that you're now on, are you trying to reach people's head or people's heart? I think I try to reach both people's heads and their hearts because I think that both are equally important. And it goes back to bits of advice and one of the typical questions we always get asked as astronauts, do you have any advice for kids or for people aspiring to be astronauts? And the thing that I always come back to is to that passion and making sure that you are following what it is that you're passionate about. And so I think that that's incredibly important in communicating all of these ideals and communicating what is important, the issues and the data that we have now about our changing climate and the effects it's going to have and what we need to do to inform these decisions. People need to care, first of all, before they can use their brains. We definitely right. need the heads as well. We need their brains to make those changes. They have to be intentional. People have to be do these things very consciously. But I think if we don't first capture their hearts, then you just won't have the same kind mm. of support and, and yeah. output. <laughs> yeah. well, Paul, sorry, I bow to you now. Ah, so look, um, Jessica, I just want to lower the tone a little bit here to try and bring us down to allow people to to kind of connect with your extraordinary experience of more than 200 days in space. So forgive me asking a silly little question, but what was the best moment and what was the worst moment? That's difficult to put into words of what the best moment was because there were very, very many. But I think that one of the best, of course, that I can think of right off the top of my head is the moment that I arrived on the International Space Station. And for people like Melania that know me well, I think the look on my face really captured exactly my sentiments <laughs> and everything that I was feeling. And it was interesting. There was a certain combination of words that so many people contacted me with and used to describe what they saw when I arrived on the space station. And so many different people from all different walks of life, everybody used the combination of words to say pure joy, 
there was just this look of pure joy on your face. Oh, how beautiful. And I thought it was a really interesting choice of words because I don't think it's, I don't think joy is actually a word that people use very commonly. You know, we say. Not, not, let's put it this way. Not in the science field. Not enough. Not enough. That's what I'd say. Not enough. But even when they're talking about that emotion, I think people use the word happy or they, there are other words that we, that we've used and everybody from very, very different backgrounds, sets of people were saying the same thing, saying pure joy. And that moment, it just, it, it was, it was surreal opening that hatch and being on the space station. I mean, really all of it was surreal. It's something that I say a lot. And I think maybe that's just the way my brain kind of works. And when these things, when these extreme things are happening to me that I, that it's difficult for me to believe that they're actually real. And I think for that, for this, this was something I thought about since I was five years old and worked so hard at trying to achieve my entire life. So I think that joy, when I first got to the space station, and not only did I arrive to the space station, I also arrived to an assortment of crew members, many of which were actually, many of whom were actually my classmates. So when I say my classmates, these are the other individuals that were selected to be astronauts at the same time as me. And they're like my brothers and sisters. So it's a kind of class reunion uh, as you're spinning around the world at 17,000 miles an hour, right? It was. At that moment, there were actually four of the eight of us. So 50% of our class was up there at the same time, which was wow. something I never dreamed could happen. And so I think that was probably one of the best moments. The worst moments? I don't know if I had a worst moment. I was really oh. smiling for almost seven months straight, which, again, I think <laughs> Melania can attest to is not my normal state. <laughs> not anybody's normal state, really. <laughs> right. Um, but of course, you know, there are moments that are frustrating when you're working on something and maybe it's not going as planned. And, and as astronauts, of course, you can imagine a lot of us are perfectionists and we feel an incredible sense of responsibility when we're up there because we know how fortunate we are to be the ones on that end. And there are so many other people that are equally deserving of that opportunity, but unfortunately only a few of us get it. So it's really an enormous sense of responsibility mm. that when yeah. you, know, you you put this pressure on yourself. And, and I think for me, those were some of the, the harder moments for me were, was actually just realizing that I couldn't physically do everything that I wanted to do for everybody else and for myself while I was up there just because I was limited by time. So that was something that I had to deal with. What was one thing that you really wanted to do that you didn't get to? One thing that I really wanted to do that I, I didn't have a lot of time for was I flew a piccolo up there. I play the flute and piccolo and saxophone, and I decided not to fly the flute because it was taking up too much space in my very small allocation. So <laughs> I flew the piccolo, and then there was also a saxophone on board that Thomas Pesquet, the French astronaut, had left up there. And I had grand plans to really do spend some time playing these instruments Actually, playing music has been one of the things that I found that I really miss about my life in terms of getting older and not having time to do all of these things that we used to do uh, when we were younger. And so I really was hoping to have some time to connect with my musical instruments up there. And I played them a couple times and in, in, for um, some short periods, but not in the way that I'd intended. Wow. I, I didn't think the answer to that question was going to be, I didn't get enough time to play music, but that's amazing that that's the answer. Um, 
Can I ask sort of, a, a, you've answered part of this question already, but um, I'd be really interested to hear your sort of straight answer to it. What can leaving the planet do for our attempt to live well on it? I think that leaving the planet can do a lot of things in terms of what we can bring back to our own planet. And the first of all, that is science and data. And I think we all understand that those are really the foundations of what we need to provide to the world in order to make these well-informed policy decisions so that we can take the steps necessary to save our planet. So at NASA, we have a lot of different experiments and a lot of uh, ongoing areas of research that do bring back that earth science aspect to deliver what we're saying this off the planet for the planet off the earth for the earth. Mm. And I think that's an incredibly important part about what we do at NASA. And a lot of times people forget about those experiments because they're not as visible. They don't have a human element in them. People love to tell the stories and take pictures and video and see us doing an experiment, one that requires human interaction, whereas a lot of these experiments actually don't. They are a piece of hardware or a scientific instrument that may be mounted on the outside of the internal space station, for example. Of course, there are many other remote sensing and satellite systems that NASA has out there for a variety of scientific experiments that are not on the International Space Station, but I'm a little bit more familiar with those that are, given the fact that I, I spent almost seven months there. But these instruments, a lot of them are mounted on the outside of the space station, so they receive less attention than the things that we're directly interfacing with as humans inside. And that's, I think, just simply human nature. I think we all know humans love to see that human element. It makes them better able to relate to whatever it is you're trying to explain. So sometimes if I'm trying to connect with a human about an experiment that I'm doing, it's a lot easier to use an example of something that they can relate to that yes. has a biological or a medical implication or they can see me touching. But just a few examples of some of the instruments that we have collecting data actively on the International Space Station. There's an experiment that is taking thermal infrared measurements of the Earth's surface. So it's looking at changes in water availability and really under trying to understand when vegetation is under water stress, what impact that has to the global carbon cycle. We have several instruments that are looking more at weather systems, severe thunderstorms and their role in atmosphere and climate and upper atmospheric lightning, those kinds of things. Looking at solar irradiance, so looking at the solar irradiance and the total energy input that's delivering to the Earth. There are instruments looking at the nighttime observations of air glow, so that faint emission of light in the upper atmosphere and how that affects weather. There are examples for other global weather patterns, hurricane detection. There's an instrument that's measuring methane concentrations in the atmosphere. Of course, I, I don't need to tell this audience here about the implications there in terms of our changing climate, but this instrument is capable of providing very accurate measurements of methane in our atmosphere. There's an instrument measuring ozone and other gases and aerosols. And again, I think this is a very important set of data that NASA can deliver to help policymakers, to inform them, to inform people, to inform those policymakers, to lead us in the right direction to make these hopefully climate changing decisions that can help us preserve our planet. Now, Jessica, all of that data 
is important in and of itself. But in order to see changing patterns, changing concentrations, changing conditions, we would have to have an accumulation of that data over time. Um, because that's what climate change is all about, right? It's changes over time. So does NASA, I, you used a, a wonderful word before payload, which I think you told me was a devices that are up there and are the basis of the experience. D does NASA have time, um, not, not specifically for one time, but rather long-term data collection capacity and data collection analysis that can help us understand what we from down here recognize as increasingly quick changes that are no longer linear, but exponential. Is that something that is evidenced from the data that is collected? I think so. And I don't know the particular details of, you know, we'd have to look back at the data sets that we have now, but NASA has been making these kinds of measurements and other similar measurements for decades now. You know, NASA has been doing earth science and climate research for quite a while now. We've had these satellite capabilities. And of course, they're ever changing and evolving and we have different experiments coming and going but i would have to look into some more of those specifics and i know we have some incredible personnel on the earth science team that i think could probably deliver us with some specific resources for that and i'd be happy to to help you track those down and maybe that is something that that we can help provide to the listeners in the future um, but of course that is incredibly important in looking at that overall data set we have a, a data archive, I know, for example, with our life science experiments, and we're very, NASA does a very good job of making sure that that is robustly recorded. There's a repository for all of, all of those data. So I'm certain that this must exist for all the other disciplines as well. Jessica, can I ask um, a question? You know, you mentioned Mars, but... Um... Like many people, I've watched a little bit of science fiction. Now, we all know the stars are a long way away. Do you think we will one day go to sleep and travel to the stars? And would you go on such a mission if we had the technology? Why did you say go to sleep? Because it takes a hundred or a thousand or a million years, Christiane. You can't uh, stay awake. I see. It's not, it's not a normal sleep. Okay, okay, Where, where okay. do you get your space data from, Paul, just out of interest? Uh, Arthur C. Clarke. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I think it's I think it's wonderful to dream in those directions of eventually traveling to other stars and in evoking those kind of more science fiction-y type stories and visions. And I think that eventually we'll get there as a human species. I mean, that is, of course, if we're successful in keeping our planet alive for that long, first of all. But I think, you know, we we are actively planning at NASA right now with Artemis missions to go back to the moon. That will happen, I hopefully, in my career. And I hope that we do get to Mars relatively soon as well. I'm not sure realistically if that will actually happen during my career as an astronaut, but hopefully in my lifetime. And then we'll see what is beyond that next step. I think eventually anything is possible, as we've seen through the the emergence of technologies were certainly never imagined before we had airplanes flying it was something that seemed completely science fictional mm, and, yeah. and then eventually leaving and looking back at our planet and that very iconic earthrise photo taken on apollo 8 by bill anders that image was of course very pivotal 
in shaping yes. the environmental movement and making Absolutely. people understand how special our planet was. So, mm. you know, I think whatever we can dream, we can eventually make happen if we if we put the right importance and resources behind it. Mm. Well put, well put. Thank you. Um, well, Jessica, we have taken so much of your time and I know that there are others waiting for you for yet another interview, probably interview number 56 of the day. Um, <laughs> so we will give you the last word, but before that, we will give Melania the last question. Well, what an honor over the last uh, hour. You guys have made me laugh and cry and just feel completely overwhelmed with pride for knowing all of you. So this last question, I want to bring it to the, to the question of ambition, because ambition is such a big thing this year in the climate world. Uh, in 2020 is when the countries are having to uh, pledge their new fulfillment uh, for the Paris Agreement. Uh, but also ambition is what you talked about for NASA, for those plans of going to the moon and back to Mars, back to the moon and to Mars. Um, so coming back to your first answer about that picture of you standing on the moon, what are your current ambitions right now and how do you work day to day uh, towards that? And how do you keep yourself uh, inspired and motivated with those really long term goals? Uh, how do you create that new imagined reality to work towards that when it's something so far away? Well, I think the first answer for the first part of the question of what my next ambition and goal is I think is to make that original drawing come true. And although I have gone to space and I have indeed worn a spacesuit in the vastness of space, I have not been to the moon. And that's what that first picture was. It was a drawing of me standing on the moon. Since we are poised right now with these Artemis missions, I really hope that I do get to play a role in those missions. If it's not as one of the astronauts going to the moon, then at least supporting somehow from the ground. So that is my next goal and what I will be working towards here as I return to my support roles in the astronaut office. And I think that kind of ambition is important for everything that we do. We talked earlier about the heart and the brain and which one is, is more important. And I think that that ambition really all plays into both of those things, mm. to fueling those passions that we have in our hearts and toward making those things come to fruition, making them care, being able to carrying them out in, in using our brains. And those are some very ambitious things, the things that we are talking about today in terms of saving and protecting our planet, in terms of the future of space exploration as well. But if we don't set those goals for ourselves, if we don't give ourselves something truly lofty to aspire to, then we certainly won't be making any progress forward, I think, in, in really any of these arenas. So I think that kind of ambition is, is really important. And it, it does need to be realistic as well. There need to be incremental goals. And that's exactly what people like this group are trying to do by establishing, by getting, establishing these policies, by bringing together all of these international players in toward one common goal and having that ambition is is really the place to start and that's something that i really like i i listened to that first episode that you did for your outrage and optimism podcast with david yeah it really meant a lot to me because i have to admit i've actually been feeling quite pessimistic lately in terms of returning to earth during this global pandemic and everything that is is facing us as humans right now it does seem pretty insurmountable 
people. So keeping that dose of optimism, you know, that was something that my father used to always say to us. He would say, this too shall pass. Mm. And I usually Mm. shy away from those kind of platitudes. But what I think is important about that expression is not only in a negative way that, okay, this bad moment will pass, but also for people to remember that when good things are happening, to enjoy them, to cherish them, and to appreciate them, because those good things are also equally as fleeting. And one of the things that I did, I think it was only two days before I left the space station, I was able to talk to your very first guest on this podcast, to Sir David Attenborough, from space. And Mm. we we have a few opportunities where they'll try to arrange a conversation with someone kind of noteworthy that you might not be able to talk to otherwise. And the second one that I did on the space station was with David Attenborough just a few days before leaving. And I positioned myself in the cupola because I wanted to be looking down on the planet while I was hearing that iconic voice. Oh, how beautiful. And it was so powerful listening Mm. to his voice in my ears as I was going around. Wow. It was certainly a conversation that I'll I'll never forget. But moments like that do encourage me and hopefully encourage the world to to retain some kind of optimism because i think as as you have captured so well without that you certainly won't be able to rise to any challenge well you have un un uh, unquestioned by us and unprodded you have actually answered our usual concluding question which is We feel that we need both outrage about what we haven't done yet, as well as optimism about what we can continue to do. And we usually ask all our guests in in that space between utter outrage and utter optimism, where do you place yourself? But I think you've kind of done that already, unless you want to add a detail there. Uh, Yeah, I think that that probably sums up most of it. I think I I do. I... I probably end up more on the the outrage side and have to remind myself to still be optimistic. (laughs) But I think both are equally as important. And I, and I applaud your approach because I think that it is the right way to, to go about this and to really face these insurmountable or what might seem to be insurmountable challenges. Well, fantastic. Jessica, what a true pleasure to be able to chat with you. Um, on behalf of Paul and Tom and, and Melania um, and Clay and Marina, all of us on, on the phone here with you, thank you so, so much. We we were very much looking forward to this, have been looking forward to this for months. And, uh, and, and finally, uh, we got our little dream here to talk to you. So thank you so much for taking the time and sharing with us. You're Thank very you. welcome. It was wonderful to speak to all of you today and especially on Melania's birthday. <laughs> Yay. Happy birthday, Melania. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. you Jessica. Bye, Jessica. Bye, Jessica. Bye, Bye Melania. Bye, Bye y'all. Bye. So I don't know about you guys, but I've always wanted to talk to an astronaut in my life. That was an amazing experience to have her relate that journey that she was on. Um, what a privilege to have her on. What do you leave that conversation with? Well, I was, you know, 
It was lovely to hear talk about the pure joy of arriving at the space station. All these different people that she knew all said that that was what defined it. But um, no, I picked up, obviously we all know this This kind of, it's, it's almost like a cliche, you know, you leave the earth and suddenly you realise it. But I was really dwelling on some of the words she used, um, how, you know, how it does change you and it changes you philosophically. And um, she called the earth a beacon in the void of space. You know, it's not flat. You know, we are on this on this kind of spaceship, this spinning spaceship. And she's, you know, th- th- you know, summing it all up, she talked about preserving our planet, this unique home. We are truly all in this together, seeing the land masses linked. And then concluding by saying, I wish I could transport every human here. I wish mm. all the world leaders could be up here and see this view. And certainly when I think of national leaders kind of, you know, throwing barbs and jibes at each other, um, that would be a very good thing. I'm, I will chip in for the crowdfunder campaign to lift uh, the UN heads of state into space. <laughs> you know, um, I don't know how many of you remember um, the NASA's twin astronauts, the identical twins, Scott and Mark Kelly. Uh, Scott went almost on a year-long space flight way back in 2015 and 16, a, a good year for us. And Mark stayed on Earth deliberately, you know, to measure genetic changes um, that were caused by space flight, etc. But I had the opportunity at one point to speak to Scott. And I asked him, when you came back, what was your, you know, what, what is your most important message? And it is exactly Jessica's message. Interesting. Exactly the same message. He really wishes that all of us would have the perspective of this little blue dot that is all intertwined, that is all interconnected, um, that is so fragile and that we are just taking so for granted and so abusing consciously or unconsciously. And he said, you know, seeing that from out there just absolutely changes your mindset, your perspective, your attitude toward your behavior here on earth. So I thought it was fascinating that they both have exactly the same message. And what's, I mean, you know, obviously I've never been to space, but I'm fascinated by this overview effect as we talked about. And um, what's interesting about it is it doesn't fade. Like so much of our experiences, you have an insight and then it fades over time and you go back to your old habits. But from the research that I've read about the overview effect is it, it, you, it changes you permanently. Hmm. It's really amazing, isn't it? I mean, it Why, really is, Tom? Why? I don't know. That's what's so fascinating about it. And it's, it, it really it's, is... It's hard cha- to imagine. I mean, all that happens is yeah, you're on this enormous <laughs> stick full of kind of practically explosive stuff, then your eyeballs are you know, put into the back of your skull, you're blasted into the atmosphere and then you, you know, you're so dangle in an entirely weightless environment looking out the window, uh, listening to David Attenborough. I mean, it's going to have an effect. I, I think that that's just su- such a brilliant explanation of the of the scope <laughs> and the majesty of space travel, Paul. I really think that really we should I, do I an experiment. Think... Let's send Dickinson into space and <laughs> whoa, see if it whoa, has whoa, any whoa, impact. Whoa, 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 whoa. Is, <laughs> he, is he applying for, you know, astronaut <laughs> Do you know status? what? I actually, I, that when the rocket's going off, I have to do something else that day. I really would love to, but I can't because <laughs> I'm tiny, weeny, bit scared maybe. <laughs> I'll tell you what, here's the thing. Kind of interesting, actually, because you'll be aware that there's been, um, you know, the the recent um, SpaceX rocket launch and a lot of talk from billionaires about going to space. And you know what? A little bit they're inspired by 
I've heard Elon Musk and others talk about like, oh, what happens if, you know, Earth is blown up in a nuclear exchange or something? You know, we need to have humans on another planet. And then to hear Jessica saying, well, no, we we got to protect and preserve this home to be mm, able to get the technology absolutely. together to, to be able to leave the planet. So in a way, it's kind of weird to have all this kind of, we got to get to Mars because we're about to die on Earth. But it's got people thinking maybe about a theme earlier we were talking about kind of risk. Yeah. I think I think the other thing which I mean can give you that experience and that breakthrough transformation is is art of course and um you know one of the I don't know if I, if anyone's seen this but recently when I gave my TED talk there was someone else who gave a talk at the same time called Oliver Jeffers and Oliver is the most brilliant children's illustrator and author he gave a talk at the same time and we sort of bonded a bit over it and we become Zoom friends and we sit up late at night and drink wine when our kids are asleep and if you haven't seen Oliver's work you should have a look at his TED talk and he did this brilliant thing when his son was born where they created this enormous earth and they drew the um, the boundaries on the map so that you couldn't quite see. You could see from a distance there was something written there. It was on the High Line in New York. And then when you got closer, you could see that what was written on every country is just people live here. Aww. And it has this kind of amazing experience that we think we see the difference. Exactly. But the similarity is so much greater. Yes. We should pivot now to let you know, you will have known, those who joined us last week for the live show will know that we are bringing you a new part of these podcasts each week. Um, and that is we're bringing music. Now, we were really inspired to do this and to bring amazing music from emerging artists. Um, many of us sort of struggle to find new music or like, you know, find new music that's written with a purpose. But there's so much creativity and interest in this space at the moment. And we formed a partnership with so far sounds so far um is a brilliant global group that was created by a very good friend of mine called rafe offer and it invites people to come to somebody else's living room and so far arranges for the musical artist to come and they play and if you haven't been to one of these obviously you can't do it at the moment with lockdown but um when we're all back and able to be together again i'd really recommend it i did it several times tom when right. i was living in london right, 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 totally yeah. loved it yeah and i was so intending to host one of these fantastic concerts and well somehow we never got our act yeah. together to be able to do that but a fantastic experience that i too would highly recommend you know you could host one at the beach in costa rica that would be a nice thing to do now we're talking there you go yeah <laughs> lots of artists float, making their way Give over to the costa rica <laughs> um so anyway through so far we have um because of course they know all the music in the world that's thinking about this they've cur curated this amazing list of emerging artists and we're going to bring you a song each week that is a song with a purpose and this week we've selected one that's by an artist called mesodorm and the song is called easy and I think this is particularly relevant, again, going back to the conversation with Richard Curtis, all the questions from people about the struggle that people have. Um, because this is about sort of facing that and being honest, but also, you know, finding a human way through it. And I would really recommend also that you watch the video because the video on YouTube is absolutely beautiful with multiple different voices and people singing. And um, the link is going to be... I've got it. Clay's got it. Claire's going to put the link in the show notes. And, and you know what? I think the song Easy and also um, what you were saying earlier about that globe on the High Line, it's like we're all these little islands, us people. And then for me personally, the music is the bedrock that just connects us all. So mm. I'm so looking forward to hearing yeah. this. And we asked them about this song and they said, you know, the, the underlying theme of it is our desire in life for things to flow, to be easy, to feel mm. free. And the fact that most of the time, Life's not really like that, but sort of that's that's okay. And then we we, we sort of mm -hmm. do our best. And they're also very thoughtful about sort of the role of artists during the climate emergency. They really point out the fact that, you know, 
leaders of culture need to show the way, making our lives less about work and money, less about competition, less about success and in inverted commas, more about collaboration, about meaning and about connection and integrity. So they really have an amazing philosophy um, and it's a beautiful song. Hope you enjoy it. I'm going to be out for a couple of weeks. I'm going on holiday with my family. My brilliant no. co-host will be no. in charge. Ah. Um, probably ah. with an additional guest co-host. I'm sure it'll be fun. Ah. So um, thanks for joining us this week. Hope you have enjoyed it. And they'll see you next week. Have a good time, Tom. Bye. 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 With your mother on the left, your daddy on the right. Nothing in the middle but a bare fight. Your days are all day looking side to side. And they've shouted all your life. No, it's not easy. Kid. No, it's not easy, kid We're all living day to day Trying to get along together ha, ha. No, it's not easy, kid No, it's not easy, kid We're all living day to day Trying to get along together ha, ha. well they've been talking and talking and talking for hours you wonder where the words going out of their mouths why it's so hard just to smile and play and they've shouted all your life no it's not easy kid no you're not But we're all living day to day Trying to get along together ha, ha. No, it's not easy, kid No, it's not easy, kid We're all living day to day Trying to get along together ha, ha. And now you're sitting in the car Rubber band brains all made of clay You want to whisper words I could try to explain But you've been shouting all your life I could be easy I could be easy But we're all living day to day Trying to get along together ha ha I could be easy, I could be easy We're all living day to day, trying to get along together Ha ha, ha ha, ha 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 ha, ha ha, ha But we're all living day to day 
trying to get along together. You know it's not easy. You know it's not easy. We're all living day to day, trying to get along together. Ha 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 ha. So there you go, another episode of Outrage and Optimism. Outrage and Optimism is a production of Global Optimism and is produced by Clay Carnell and executive produced by Marina Mancilla-Germann. This podcast happened because of our team, Katie Bradford, Sarah Law, Sophie McDonald, Laura Richardson, Sharon Johnson, Freya Newman, Sarah Thomas, Nigel Topping, and Michael Northrup. And our hosts are Christiana Figueres, Paul Dickinson, and Tom Rivet-Karnak. Okay, so this Saturday, July 11th, Tom is moderating a special virtual event for Yasmin Ansari with former Obama National Security Advisor Ben Rhodes. Uh, Yasmin is running for Phoenix City Council District 7. Um, I actually I got the opportunity to meet Yasmin when we recorded our interview with John Kerry, and I was so inspired by her story, why she's running for office, what she wants to do. So you can learn all about this and more and support her by attending her event on this Saturday, July 11th. Link is in the show notes. Don't miss this event. Okay, on to my weekly thank yous. Thank you to Mesodorm for recording for us a version of their song, Easy. As everyone mentioned earlier on the podcast, you need to go watch their music video for this song. Link is in the show notes. Check it out. And our interview today was made possible by Megan Sumner, the team at NASA, and our special guest interview co-host, Melania Guerra. And of course, thank you to our guest, NASA astronaut Jessica Mayer. One really, really cool thing Jessica mentioned to us after the interview that I wanted to tell all of you about is that for NASA missions, the astronauts design their own mission patches to communicate the main themes of their purpose for going on the mission. And so for Jessica, she wanted the Expedition 62 patch to capture her commitment to environmental stewardship as one of the main elements. It's seriously so cool. Um, I'm looking at it right now. It's got these two space explorers on it. One's holding a star. The other is holding a birch leaf, which birch trees are indigenous to regions that the crew members from all sides call home. You need to check it out. I've put a link in the show notes so you can look at it, read a bit more on all the symbols on the patch and what they mean, and you can even buy one and then sew it on your jacket. And if you do that, you should post it and tag us. Oh, and tag Jessica too, at astro underscore Jessica. And speaking of tagging, we're on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Global Optimism. And if you love the podcast, please subscribe and leave us a rating. Nobody knows why the ratings help, but they definitely do. Like, a lot. Okay, next week, can we survive without Tom? I don't know. Uh, Tune in to find out. We'll see you then.